morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Law and Robert and Rick. Ah, oh, we're all here this morning, except for Lawson. <laughs> Not sure where Lawson. I think he's gone to Melbourne, you know, escape all of the COVID yeah. up there and go down to COVID Victoria and... Yeah, anyway. So Lawson is not with us, but we're super glad to have uh, Robert and Rick with us. Of course, Robert's been with us the last couple of days, and I haven't, so I'm, I'm kind of uh, glad to be back. I was, I was glad to be gone. Now oh, I'm glad to be back. Glad to have you back, man. Yeah. So tell me, guys, uh, Robert, what are you thankful for this morning? I'm really thankful um, for my brother. Okay. We didn't get on so well as little kids. and That's how brothers go. We get on really well now. That's fantastic. And what he's done is he has lent to me two kites and this board and all the gear I need uh, to be able to develop my kite surfing because he's been teaching me to kite surf. So I'm just grateful for a brother who cares about me and wants me to look after my health and to get out there and <laughs> be active. And after learning surfing for a year now, he says, well, you need to learn kite surfing. So. Okay, so you got a sore rib this morning. Is this a result of kite surfing or real surfing? Oh, uh, that's the result of wave surfing. <laughs> okay. <so> re- <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't make me laugh. Oh, yeah. Yep. So Robert is struggling with laughing here this morning. We're going to try and make him laugh as much as we can because he grimaces yeah. every time we do and we enjoy his pain. You but... try and do that and I'll be talking about cats, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rick, what are you thankful for this morning? Oh, I'm thankful for family. We, uh, we tend to travel north to central Queensland every year for Chrissy time and yep. be with um, Jen's side of the family. This, this year we've stayed home in little old Paxton and had uh, our family come and join us there. So um, nice. it's just nice. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully those borders do stay open, uh, particularly in this local area right here. i just got to say that, you know, uh, about a month ago I predicted 40 days of, of, of rain and 40, 40 days of rain and 40 nights of rain, and we only had 30. Uh, but Not we bad. did have a, uh, a sailing day planned for our regional pastors and we had perfect weather for You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, let's move into some positively different news. What have you got for us there, Robert? Well, mate, I've, I've been sort of leaning on the side of nature, science and health and stuff like that because, you know, that's stuff I really love. And we've got some really cool news. One's come in from Quebec. This man is 93 years old, and what he's done is he's been protecting this little small island uh, right in the area of Canada there, and, and he's been protecting it from all these property developers who have been desperate to try and, you know, build everything up and make Waterfront more money. Waterfront properties and make lots of money. Oh, this little island is right in the middle of just a concrete jungle. And and they can't touch it. Okay, so just 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 okay, is this an island within concrete or is this an island in the ocean? It's an island in a, a river section. Yes. Probably close to the to the ocean. So either side of the on the river. So all around it. Yes. Are with water in between are, yes. are all these city uh, built up areas. Yep. All of yep. your all of your waterfront properties just like solid <laughs> right. you know, population. Just uh-huh. everywhere. That's it. And so this man is protected. He's got loads of butterflies and turtles teeming this island, right? And he's been looking after it and not letting anybody touch it for all these years. But he's realised he's getting old. Yeah. Does he own it? He owns it. Yeah, okay. So he's built a hut there and he's got all these animal protection things in place to, to look after them and help them thrive. And he's like, i got to give this to someone. Sell it to someone who's actually going to look after it. 
So he's he's given it over to conservation, and now it's going to be landmarked as something that can't be touched by right. any commercial industry. <laughs> well done. No one else can touch it, and he he feels confident he can let it go. You know, and this is somebody this is somebody that could actually be probably a billionaire if they chose to. Oh, you know, multi multi millionaire. You, you're sitting on you know real estate like that. You know, you imagine if you owned an island in the middle of Sydney Harbour that had no development on it, and there was no restrictions on development. On it. Imagine what that would yeah. be worth. A multi millionaire centurion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so so good to see people. You know, the Bible does actually say God takes nature very seriously and, and looking after it. Yeah, yeah. stewardship. That's it, yeah, stewardship and also even his attitude toward those who destroy the earth. You know, he's pretty serious. So so my question is, is this island then going to become available for people to, you know, in managed numbers to actually go and visit it and enjoy its natural beauty? I'm not sure how much people are going to be able to visit it. I haven't looked that far into it, but uh, I know that it's <laughs> Hopefully going to be Hopefully they can. I want to go there. I'd love to see that. Yeah, well, usually they do that, you know, yeah. when you have a cons- conservation area. Because it has this good little hut and it's got areas where animals are looked after, then it's a place oh, where man, people... this guy's got a piece of paradise. I wonder if that could be a blueprint for the Whitsunday Islands and right up through the paradise. Yeah, well, it might be a little bit late there, Rick. There's, there's a bit of development up on the Whitsundays. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's plenty of islands around the place that, uh, that we are protecting here in Australia at the moment, and it's good to see this happening. Absolutely. Well, shifting over to science, it's... You know, there are some huge developments happening in science that actually reveal the design in nature, the fact that someone must have constructed things. Most of us have heard about the uh, flagellar motor inside the wall of the flagellum bacteria, and you've got this single motor that has 40 moving parts, all made from proteins, all with this DNA coding that is so complex that it, it's, you know, it had to be, have been designed by somebody, and it's an electric motor, and it actually works it's incredible how it operates. Mm-hmm. But what we're looking at here is we're looking at some new information on butterflies and how butterflies use the sun. So you, you look at a butterfly, they're like the most fragile thing on the planet and they flit around all over the place and you think, do they even have a, like, how big, how big is their actual brain? Yeah. You know, it's like, would you even be able to see their brain if you did brain surgery on them? You know, you'd need a microscope to see it. And their life expectancy. I, I've, I've never worked that out. How long do they actually live? Yeah, yeah well, actually, butterflies' life expectancy is pretty small. That's right. It, it's, uh, it's not very long at all. But the thing that really hits here is that they do have a brain. And they have cells in their brain which actually encode the sun. And these particular cells, this is as phenomenal as geese being able to see the magnetic fields on the earth. And this is true, guys, another part of our news today. But, uh-huh. but butterflies, what they actually encode the sun with these cells in their brain and they are able to map as long as they're not being blown off course too badly and they don't have too many things. They have to be in a fairly controlled environment. They do all their mapping and planning before they fly. So it's like an inbuilt GPS. No way. So they actually it's punch into the GPS, GPS where they're going to go before they go. Well, you know, good point. GPS is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a butterfly does no, that. No, GBS. <laughs> oh, that made me laugh. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it, it's really uh, phenomenal that science is uncovering things that humans thought we invented, but now we're starting to realize we have a mighty God who actually puts thoughts into men's minds and helps them invent things because they already existed before we were even born. Yeah, this is just wild stuff. 
Um, you know, and, and what f- fascinates me about butterflies is you get these monarch butterflies that will take, you know, generations to, well, I think it was five generations to, um, to migrate to Mexico from Canada, one generation to go back, and they all follow the same route, except they've developed new routes now because they've put um, oil rigs across the Gulf of Mexico, and they're like, oh, we can take a shortcut now, and they've now actually learnt the shortcuts yeah. across the Gulf via the oil rigs. How does that work? Explain that one to me, please. How does, how does you know, you get a random butterfly who gets blown off course, programs it into his GPS and then tells everybody else, hey, I've just found a shortcut? Yeah. That is wild stuff. And they've got, as we say, a brain the size of a pinhead. And, and here's something else about that. The mums and dads who did that flight are not alive when the babies who were born up north and have never seen the flight in their life then take that flight, that shortcut, with those yeah. oil rig opportunities, and they have never been shown it physically. They take it for the first time by themselves with no mum or dad. No other generation has done that flight. How do they do that? Yeah. Hey, isn't it amazing? One can wonder why in Scripture there is so much pointing direction. Consider God's created animals. Yes. And that, yes. The ant, you just go through. And talking about some of the really small and significant ones. Yeah. 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 And we learn so much mm-hmm. if we're willing to learn. That's that's incredible. I had no idea. I've got to find out where all this is coming from. Yeah, it's 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 pretty wild stuff. And, you know, you, you, you look at what they're actually able to accomplish, the distances that they cover <sighs> and how fragile they are. Yeah. With that tiny little brain. And, and, you know, obviously the parents are passing on a map. To their children. Yeah. How does that happen? How does that actually happen? <laughs> Isn't it beautiful how the smaller you get in nature, the bigger God looks? And then you get these massive creatures like the great whales. Yeah. The great whales who migrate just almost around the earth and you're thinking, they're using a system too. That's right. They're all using the system. This is, and, this is, and this is what else is fascinating. Think about this for a moment. We understand this. As humans, we can figure this out about a butterfly. We can study a butterfly, which is like the tiniest, most fragile thing ever, and we can learn that these things have a GPS and they, they pass on maps through generations yeah. and that they can follow maps that they've never seen before. You know, God has created amazing butterflies and humans are just like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, does the opposite happen? Do butterflies know this much about well, us? I don't know. Well, I that's what I, I tend to think not. I would love to be able to talk to a butterfly and get their get their perspective on humanity. I'd love <laughs> to talk to all the animals and get their perspective on us and what we've done to our earth. Yeah. Yes. That's a big one. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Fantastic stuff, of course. Uh, Bruce has just wanted to mention, uh, who is to say God isn't guiding the butterflies? Small brain or not, they have the same God guiding as we do. Amen. Maybe they don't have an inbuilt GPS. Maybe it's just God. Just a Direct link. Direct link. <laughs> Maybe they have a direct link. We... Anyway, um, and Ruffy says, great song, Rick. Praise the Lord. We would all be truly lost without him. Can't even imagine my life now if he wasn't there. So mm. a couple of great texts coming through there. All right. So we're going to talk about, uh, we mentioned that we're going to talk about the uh, American singer, songwriter, performing artist, um, Billie Eilish. She was recently featured on the latest James Bond movie. Um, and she's come out with a rather um, well, pretty full-on statement here which it's really good to see these kinds of statements being made by people in positions of influence right now where she's saying, porn destroyed my brain at 11. I saw that. 
Wow. That is, and, mm. and by the way, she made this on the Howard Stern Show, which is one of the biggest radio shows in the United States, that from time to time promotes pornography. Yeah. Wow. So she said that uh, it is um, a, this is a disgrace what happened to her and the harmful impact uh, completely destroyed her brain. It destroyed her sleep patterns. It gave her nightmares. Uh, she had PTSD as a result of it. Um, her her she had terrible sex experiences uh, as a result of what she saw on pornography. It gave her no ability to say no to things that she didn't want to do when she was having sex. Um, it, it was violent. It was abusive. It was oh, misogynistic. It was, it was extreme. She's watching this at the age of eleven, mm. and that's actually a late start for children these days. Most children these days what? start at around about the age of eight. So eight is the average age. Today, that children are starting to watch pornography. And the problem is, one of the big problems is, I mean, there's a whole lot of problems. One of the big problems is, is that children approach this without any kind of critical thinking. Mm. You know, they know very little about the subject and they assume that everything they see on the screen is what's normal. And so, you know, they end up with, uh, with all of these effects right here. Um, and of course, you know, the attitude that it creates towards women is incredibly you know, misogynistic to begin with, mm. but they just assume that all the violence that they see, and, and porn has been a downhill spiral into just extreme violence for the last 20 years, mm. uh, and it's only getting worse. The uh, that you know they don't they they just assume that's oh well, that's that's what that's what happens, and so. Yeah. It's That's normal. what they then go and do, and yeah. then they have terrible experiences, and it destroys them for life, mm. which is horrific. The eSafety Commissioner here in Australia, of course, has says that next year it's going to be harder for kids to access pornography. Harder now, is that good enough? Yeah, harder is not good enough. Okay, so I spent some time in Iran, and when I was in Iran, I couldn't, I couldn't get Instagram, couldn't get Facebook. You know, I went to check my Instagram. It's not there. Went to check my Facebook. It's not there. If they can shut down Facebook and Instagram in Iran, why can't they shut pornography down in this country? It can't be that hard. Yeah. The other thing that the other thing that I see here is that pornography is the biggest industry in our world. It makes more money than any other industry that is out there. This would be a very lucrative place for the government to go after with fines. Imagine the fines that you could levy on that. Imagine the money that there is for the. Imagine the income our government could get from fining these guys every time they, you know, break certain rules or whatever. You know, because okay, you shut it down. I'm sure there's lots of people in Iran that uh, you do Facebook and Instagram through a VPN or whatever it might be. Uh, but just just create a legal system so you can actually go after these guys and recruit re, 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 recoup some money that is lost due to the destructive effect that it has on children. Uh, the e-commissioner says that uh, the government recommendations are, the current government recommendations, this is the current Australian government recommendations, is that parents need to be t talking to their children about this subject at the age of eight. You need to have the conversation about online porn at the age of eight and that parents need to control devices. And so we've had this conversation many, many, many mm -hmm. times here. Uh, the moment that you hand a child a, uh, a smartphone or any kind of device that connects to the internet, you have handed them unlimited access to the most worst, violent, misogynistic uh, pornography that there is imaginable. And as parents, children have rights. They have a right to be protected. They have a right to have parents who protect them from these kinds of things. 
and parents need to be standing up and being parents. When the government refuses to do so, parents need to do so. We need you in government office, man. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> Politicians talk money. You, you've got the... You've well, got the well, I'm just looking for angles here that yeah, our government can use to do a good thing. It's interesting from a societal point of view that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll denigrate pedophilia, which we need to. But we won't do anything about what's causing it. Yeah, and then... Mm-hmm. And, and what's then, grooming our children. It's what's grooming our children and the parental controls, that whole space where children, uh, you go past schools of a morning as you're driving, on the phones, on the phones. So in the old days, you had sex shops out there and just, there'd be brown paper bags people would put on. Now, it's, as we know, the internet is so free and easy. Mm. I even think eight's too late, <laughs> unfortunately. Yes. Mm-hmm. Before a kid goes to school, you need to... I mean, I had the conversation with my kids before they went to school, but this was back before the age of, uh, you know, smartphones and so forth. Yeah. And so the conversation was a little bit different than what it is right now. Yeah. Okay, I did say I would talk about this story right now, right here about uh, religious liberty mm. and the vaccine. I haven't spoken about religious liberty and the vaccine because I haven't had a religious liberty story in Australia in relationship to the vaccine. Freedom of conscience, yes, but religious liberty... No, this one is a religious liberty story, which is interesting because this person uh, belongs to the uh, Church of Ubuntu. Oh. Ubuntu, yes. It's a Newcastle-based church, so based here locally. I had to do a bit of research, hadn't heard of this church. And uh, this particular person, Lani Chait, was working for this particular church and she was just recently fired. And the reason that she was fired was because she received a COVID vaccine, double-dose vaccine. She went and got a vaccine. They fired her. Oh, for getting the vaccine. That's the opposite ah. way. So this Sabrina. is this is interesting. Now, and the reason is because this uh, Church of Ubuntu uh, promotes uh, natural therapies and natural healing and cannabis use, this kind of stuff. So you know, they're kind of open minded, but maybe a little bit too open minded on some of these things. It's a it's a Ubuntu philosophy from Southern Africa, um, and she, of course, is suing for unfair it dismissal. Now, it'll be interesting to watch this case because, I mean, I stand for religious liberty and freedom of conscience on all of these issues. Mm. But at the same time, if the state turns around and says it was illegal to fire her when she violated the doctrines of her church, then the implication is that it becomes illegal for any other church to fire someone Mm. when their doctrines are violated. So is there a, I'm thinking of precedence here. I mean, that could create well, a precedent. It could yeah. create a precedent. I'm just wondering, I'm thinking this is an interesting case to follow because of the precedence it can create. Because yeah. you, you look at the, 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 the media story and it's like, oh, of course, you know, the, the Church of Ubuntu is done because uh, you can't go and fire someone because they get a vaccine. But they actually have a doctrine that says that you can't get vaccines. That's one of their, one of their teachings oh. of their church. Yeah, wow. And so can the government define... What are legal teachings and illegal teachings in this particular case right here? And what impact would that have on other churches as far as hiring and firing goes, particularly because this is taking place in New South Wales? So for in Victoria, for instance, um, they've already in the process of making it uh, impossible to fire somebody on, you know, based on their faith. On their faith. Yes. Yeah. Um, New South Wales has had a much stronger stand for religious liberty than Victoria Mm. up until this point. But this is kind of a flipped case where you look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's a pretty straightforward and open open and closed case. And then you start to think about, Mm. wait a minute, 
I don't know. A little tug of war here, eh? Yeah, there's some implications here and there's some precedents could be set, so let's follow this one very closely and see what happens. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. I go to our interview of the day right now. Eliza Southwell is our station historian. Eliza, welcome to the show. Great to be on, Lyle. Thanks for having me. Now, Eliza, we've had this theme this year where we've looked at uh, influential Australians and Australians or people who have heavily influenced Australia uh, because many of them, of course, uh, you know, have you know come from overseas to, uh, to influence Australia. Yeah. Who are we discussing this morning? Well, as... As you said, this year we've discussed a range of Christians who are actually more British than Australian, but they did great things for this country. Um, today we have a woman who is more American than Australian, but in the 10 years she lived here, she made extraordinary changes, especially in education and health. Um, indeed, her method of evangelism involved helping people as a whole person, um, including addressing their physical and intellectual needs. And of course, today we're talking about none other than Ellen White. Um, Ellen White was born in the States in 1827. She was the youngest of eight children. And when she was 16, her family was expelled from the Methodist Church because they sympathized with the Adventist movement um, that was led by Willie Miller at the time, which taught that Jesus was coming back soon. Um, the following year, she began to experience visions, and um, she began... Um, a very unusual ministry for a woman of her time. Um, in 1846, she married a minister, James White, and through the 1860s, she helped to establish the Seventh-day Adventist Church through the U.S. and Europe. Um, but at the age of 64, when you might think a widow like her might start planning her retirement, um, her, ch- her church board sent her to Australia. So this is through the 1890s she lived in Australia. Actually, before she was sent, and some of our listeners might might resonate with this, uh, she said, I long for rest and quietude. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of people, wonder by, the, by the time they reach 64, is just sort of starting to think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm longing for rest and quietude. It'd be nice right. to retire right now. And yeah. uh, instead, this particular woman heads over to Australia. And, of course, this is in the 1800s where, you know, Women are typically not, you know, entrepreneurs. They're not, you know, mm. leading out in big enterprises and particularly not women who are at retirement age. Right, right. She was an old woman. You know, women at this time couldn't vote. They couldn't participate in public life. It was very much frowned upon uh, to, to speak on public issues. She was from a poor family. Her father was a farmer and he made hats. She was the last of eight children. She was very short. She was five foot two. She was also pretty uneducated. She had an accident when she was nine that um, ended her formal education. And even when she arrived in Australia, she was very unwell. She had severe rheumatic fever for eight months, and she also struggled with depression. So she was a very unusual, and even despite, despite those things, she had an astonishing capacity to inspire people, and even men, <laughs> to be entrepreneurial for the sake of the gospel. Okay, so you've got you've got you've got a uh, a woman in the eighteen hundreds who has limited education, who has arrived in Australia at retirement age, and yet we're talking about Australia. We're talking about people who have had a major impact on the history of Australia. What possible impact could this woman have 
on Australia. And she's only here for 10 years. That's probably the shortest time right. period of, you know, the different people that we've talked about or one of the shorter time periods of the different people that we've talked yeah. about this year. Yeah. So one of the one of the big areas that she had an impact was on education. Um, so she developed her theory of education while she was in Australia, the idea of educating the whole person mentally, socially, physically, and spiritually. Um, she established, um, she organized Adventist um, non-boarding schools in Australia, Adventist day schools, which um, still run the Adventist school system is the second largest in the world, second largest religious school system in the world. Um, she also established a Bible school in Melbourne. Um, she helped establish Avondale University College, as we know it today, um, along with providing means for students to support themselves through their studies. Um, a very um, very far-sighted initiative that, you know, today we, we think of HEX as, as our uh, method of putting students through university who can't put themselves through. Um, but she developed this idea. She was also very influential on the health front. Um, so she would go around the country preaching on, of course, religious matters and prophecy from the Bible, but also um, she would preach on temperance and domestic violence. Um, she established health retreats, especially around Sydney. She also established, and this, this will be a familiar name, Sanitarium Health Foods. Um, so if you have wheat bakes in the morning, um, you have Ellen White to thank for it. Um, she, she established Australia's first vegetarian restaurant train. You know, in 1902, things that um, you know, we, we consider as very modern indeed, um, she she was actually there inspiring, you know, our doctors are always telling us you should eat less meat and more fresh fruit and veggies while she was putting this into practice and making it practical for normal people, uh, regular people to, to implement in their lives. Um, she also helped to establish the Sydney Sanitarium, which is now called the Sydney Adventist Hospital at Moronga. Um, so she was very involved, not just in uh you know, decentralizing church organization and in preaching and as a prolific writer, um, but also addressing people's practical needs. Um, what are people's needs when it comes to education, when it comes to health, when it comes to domestic violence? So although she um, was was certainly a preacher and, and a religious figure, she made a huge impact on Australia in other very practical ways. I understand that while she was here in Australia, she um, you, know, you mentioned that she was a prolific prolific writer, but that while mm-hmm. she was here in Australia, she also wrote the book Desire of Ages on the Life of Christ, which is considered to be one of the That's greatest right. books ever written on the life of Christ. Um, That's right. In, in in today's world, which is yeah, just absolutely amazing. And she's doing all okay. So she's doing all this in the eighteen hundreds as a woman with a limited education, um, and uh, between the ages of sixty four and seventy four. So you know, very much mm-hmm. in retirement age. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And of course, she wasn't doing this. She wasn't doing these things by herself. Um, she she certainly drew on the resources that were available to her, the people that are, were around her. Um, but she had this as a as an old woman in Australia, in in pioneer Australia. Um, she had an astonishing capacity to inspire people with with a vision of what could be. Um, 
Yeah. So, so if we compare, so if we compare she, Ellen White then with some of the other, sorry for jumping in, but here, but if we compare mm-hmm. it with some of the other strong uh, female women leaders mm-hmm. um, from her era, you know, there were there were you know women out there who were pushing for the vote and pushing for you know uh, e- equality in the workforce and so forth. It mm-hmm. was something that was starting to take place back then. Um, would she be seen then, you know, because of what all of all of that she's been able to accomplish, you know, and all of this in a ten year period, uh, mm-hmm. would she be seen as being, you know, a feminist, so to speak? Oh, uh, well, some might label her that way. She certainly um, had her views on corsets and and skirts that dragged through the streets, um, but those those views were, um, and and her views on domestic violence as well weren't. Uh, motivated from a a view of you know women have been um, trodden down throughout the ages, so we need to give men peace of our minds. She she very much came from the approach of you know, wearing corsets is unhealthy, and having your skirt dragging through horse manure is unhealthy and, a bit and silly and domestic me. violence, obviously. <laughs> so so I I wouldn't describe her as a feminist, but certainly there are people who would. Um, feminist is, is a loose term and I'm not going to apply it willy-nilly. You, you mentioned that uh, she arrived in Australia as a widow, so um, Ellen White was yeah. someone who had a family, had a husband, had children? That's right. That's right. She had four sons. One of her sons actually came with her. He helped her with publishing her books. So she didn't just publish The Desire of Ages when she was here. She also wrote um, a book on uh, uh, the Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, which is about the Sermon on the Mount. She also wrote another book called Christ's Object Lessons, which is about his parables. Um, and she wrote she she was she was the most published female nonfiction author ever in all of history. Um, and she was the most published American author of either gender ever. And so she she was writing hundreds of letters, and she had regular contributions to. Adventist Church papers in the US and in Australia, she was always writing. And her son, William, who came with her to Australia, um, was was instrumental in helping her. You know, she, she only had a third grade education. He was instrumental in helping her edit those works and publish them. Um, so, yes, she was certainly, certainly a family woman, um, even though she... She had been widowed by that time. Yes, it's fascinating that, um, you know, so often we look at people and we look at their background. It's like, okay, this person has been able to do great things because they've got a great education. But, you know, and we talk about self-made men. In, mm. in many ways we would say that she was a, uh, a self-made woman, but I don't think that she would ever claim that for herself. I think that she would well, claim for herself that she was who she was because of what God had done for her. Absolutely. Absolutely. She was a God-made woman. And I think when we see someone having such a large impact, but apparently not having any um, any great titles or education for themselves, I think we clearly see the hand of God working in their lives. Um, and and we 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 see that from what people thought of her. Uh, she lived in Kurunbong for the last few years that she was in Australia, and a local businessman, Thomas Russell. Um, had this to say for her. He said, Mrs. White's presence in our village will be greatly missed. The widow and the orphan found in her a helper. 
She sheltered, clothed, and fed those in need. And where gloom was cast, she brought pre- her presence brought sunshine. So she was she was a very practical person, and she obviously had very strong views. But she had a she was cheerful, and she had a magnetic personality as well. Um, and I think it's it's often difficult when we're reading about someone's history to get a sense of them as a person. Um, but I think through through the testimony of just local businessmen that uh, she would have bought supplies from um, and would have known her around the community, she had a reputation for um, for her uh, love for other people. And where does that kind of love come from but from the one who is love, from God himself? So in that short time period that she had of 10 years here in Australia, she obviously had a massive impact on this country from a health perspective, from an educational perspective, um, from a, you know, even from an industrial perspective with the sanitarium health food company. Mm. Um, Would it be fair to say that out of, you know, women who had a massive impact on Australia in the 1800s, she is lesser known than other women from that year? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If we think of Edith Cowan, who was, um, she was working at the same time, she was working in temperance, very similar work. Um, she's on our, I think it's our $20 note. Um, you know, a, a lot of the people we've been discussing have been memorialized on our currency. Um, Ellen White is nothing of the sort. Um, and I think people tend to see her very much as a religious figure rather than recognize um, all the very practical things she did in the development of Australia as well. Um, I, hmm, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's fascinating that, um, I mean, some of these other figures that we've talked about have uh, have also been religious figures as well. Um, yeah. But, yeah, she's a, a lesser known one, but somebody that we definitely need to uh, to learn about. And, of course, you know, this station here, Faith FM, is sponsored by the Adventist Church, and our Adventist listeners will be well familiar with Ellen White, but outside mm-hmm. of uh, our church, you know, there's many of our listeners that um, would be hearing about her for the first time. So, Eliza mm-hmm. Southwell, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.